Good evening. Uh, I am Shevket Tamuk from the European Institute at LSE. Welcome to an event organized by our new unit, LSE, the Research Unit on Southeastern Europe at LSE. Today, this evening, we are going to talk about the impact of the financial and economic crisis on Southeastern Europe and its aftermath. We have a very distinguished panel of speakers in order of appearance. Vladimir Gligorov, Lazar Kekic and Peter Sanford. And uh, <coughs> we have uh, talked a little bit before the meeting and uh, we will follow this order and uh, I hope that uh, the brief presentations will nicely follow each other and each of our speakers will talk for about 10 minutes and then we will open it up for questions and comments afterwards. What I would like to do is to introduce each of our distinguished speakers um, before he begins his presentation. Vladimir Ligorov is a senior economist at the Vienna Institute for International Economic Studies. His primary areas of interest are theory of choice, macroeconomics, public finance, economics of transformation, economics and politics of former Yugoslavia. He is the author of several books and publications on Yugoslavia and Southeastern Europe. He is a regular contributor to Oxford Analytica, The Economist magazine in Belgrade, Prisma in Sarajevo, and Jutinsky Vesnik in Skopje. He lectures at the University of Vienna and is an adjunct professor at Webster University in Vienna. Floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much. I am going to, to talk from here because I have a, a, a kind of a, a presentation which is basically a series of, of uh, slides on, on facts and uh, <coughs> I can't really uh, use them all. In fact, I can't use more than uh, a handful, but uh, I, I can leave it with, with, with you if you're interested. You can, you can check. Uh, it's part of the research uh, that uh, we just finished it at the Institute for the EU on uh, the financial uh, vulnerabilities uh, in uh, so-called candidate and potential candidate countries, which means so-called Western Balkan countries plus Turkey. And, uh, and uh, I think the, the, the whole piece will be uh, available uh, relatively soon. I will just basically discuss five points and uh, try to illustrate it here and there with, with, with some data. I think before the crisis we used to think that maybe there could be a similar, that there could be some
convergence path in the Balkans that was uh, that will sort of mimic the developments in the Central European uh, countries with a lag of about five, six, seven years. Essentially, the turning point is the year 2000, almost for all the countries, including, I would say, Romania and Bulgaria, a bit earlier than that. You see here what are uh, what are the uh, what is the ranking or, or how how developed these countries are in GDP per capita at in purchasing power parity in 2008. This is a com comparison is with new member states five, which means basically Central European uh, countries, uh, Slovenia, Poland. Czech Republic, Slovakia, and But if you see the, the from 2000, if you see the, the, the developments, uh, if you see the growth rates, uh, Romania, Bulgaria, then there are these uh, uh, candidate countries. Uh, you see that this, is, this was uh, a high growth uh, period. And it sort of gave some hope that this is going to continue <coughs> in the way of or, or basically mimic the development in the Central European countries. The difference, however, was uh, that uh, uh, one, the industrial production didn't actually recover in, uh, in the Balkans. That's one big difference between uh, Balkan countries and and uh, and so called new member states. But again, there was some hope that after the year 2000 there will be some, some kind of a improvement. But if you look at these yellow bars and uh, the, in 2008 compared to 1990, the industrial production more or less everywhere was below the level of 2000, of the 1990s. The other big difference is uh, in, the, in the export performance. Again, if you look at exports of goods and services in uh, in uh, the Balkans and compared to uh, here it's new member states four I guess because otherwise Poland would dominate the whole thing uh, this is without Poland that, then you will see that there is really uh, uh, these are much more closed much more closed uh, economies and that I think is uh, the, the key difference. So if you look at the growth rates of exports, you see that most of these countries have been, the exports from these countries have been growing rather sluggishly. So that's the first point I want to make. There was some hope that maybe at some of these countries could actually repeat the Central European experience, but but uh, the, the difference was in where basically growth came and that was not necessarily in industry and 
in exports or in tradable goods in general. So that's the first point. The second point is uh, about uh, vulnerabilities. Again, uh, if you look at uh, most of the countries in Central Europe, you tend to find also uh, throughout uh, the, the history of their development post 1989, large external imbalances. But they, they sort of disappear over time. As here you see trade balance in, in commodities, and you, you see the Central European countries. This is basically uh, a very small, uh, for, for NMS5, a very small uh, deficit. If you look at, at trade deficits in the central in, in Eastern in, uh, in Southeast Europe, these are very large trade deficits. So, and that is basically the key imbalance uh, throughout the region. It, uh, it exports a, a little and imports uh, quite a lot. In fact, a similar picture is if you look at the current account. Uh, again, uh, current account in, in so-called Central European new member states is a bit better, uh, is a bit worse than, than trade balance, but, but not so much, while you have really uh, some, some enormous current account deficits throughout, uh, throughout the Balkans. In fact, I, if I find that that would be interesting, <coughs> there, is an, there, there is an interesting point to be made on this. If you look at uh, I have all kinds of stuff here, which as you can see. But there is a, a, something that I, I, I think will, will be of interest to you here. You see the, the, the details of the, of the balance of payments in this country. You see, I, here I have on the uh, Croatia and Serbia, on the next I have Romania and, and, and Bulgaria. You see in the Central European countries, you even have trade, trade surpluses. You see the Czech Republic, this, this thing here, this is a trade surplus, basically. Most of the, you see Hungary actually, in, into, this is all before the crisis has, most of these countries have actually been uh, running close to, to balance or surpluses in, in trade, or very small deficits. Poland is a country with, with a larger deficit, trade deficit. But they have a relatively significant income Income that uh, imbalance on the income account there is a deficit. You see these are income, so, so which means that this foreign investment that came in that's the claim of the foreign investors on the on these economies. But if you look at Croatia and, and Serbia, for instance, over there, you see huge trade trade deficits. 
And surpluses are in uh, transfers, which are remittances. So these are very different economies. You look, strange enough, Bulgaria and Romania don't look all that different also. Uh, and then, of course, these countries actually look very much like, like the Baltics. Uh, so uh, Turkey is a, uh, is, is a different country in this respect. So that's a, that's a second point I want to make. There is a huge, there is a huge imbalance on the external account before the crisis, which was uh, not, uh, which was mainly driven by the trade deficit. In some people in, in make a mistake, I would say, looking at this whole region and say all these countries had current account deficits, so they are all vulnerable on the external account. But, but actually, the, the Central European countries have a completely different structure of, of, of external problems. They, they, they are the, the, the current account deficit is almost entirely the consequence of the income balance, while and they are very competitive on, on, on trade, while uh, countries in the Balkans are basically not competitive or not... Uh, 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 yes. The other, the third point uh, is the effects of the, of the crisis. These, uh, these uh, have been rather similar in the sense of the decline of industrial production and decline of uh, exports and, and, and generally the, the trade developments have been similar throughout the region. But the GDP uh, contraction has been different. For instance, uh, countries, uh, I, I have to uh, cut, uh, go through this faster, so I will just say that one differentiation is whether the countries have had flexible or fixed exchange rates and also contributing factor is whether they have had uh, pro-cyclical or, or counter-cyclical fiscal policies before the crisis. So if you take these two criteria into account, you, you have Croatia basically uh, declining by about 6% this year, GDP decline will be about 6% this year, Serbia uh, about 3, the latest official uh, expectation, uh, Macedonia even less, probably about 2, Montenegro somewhere between 2 and 3, because of, of, of the ability to have a fiscal, fiscal stimulus. And Albania and, and Kosovo actually uh, positive growth rates. So far, uh, Albania will probably end up with a growth rate of about 1.5% this year. And officially they, they even say more. But but let's say certainly in the positive territory. And Kosovo also about, according to the IMF, about 3%, whatever that means. But, but, but that's, 
<laughs> that's, that's, that's the figure. So, with the exception of Romania as, as a flexible exchange, quasi-flexible exchange rate country, which will have a very strong decline is, is in GDP, there is a divide between countries with flexible rates like Albania and, and, and Serbia, which, have a which will suffer less in GDP, and the fixed exchange rate countries that will do worse, ceteris paribus. And you have to take into account that probably Bulgaria would do even worse had it not had this uh, money saved in good times and so that it can spend so there's some kind of a fiscal stimulus that is possible there. Growth prospects. The, the key, <coughs> from what I've said now, the key issue to my mind is whether there will be a, change, a switch in, in the, in the uh, sources of growth, so to speak. So far, the main source of growth has been, as you, as you could see from these uh, slides, uh, consumption and uh, and uh, uh, both both private and and, and, and public uh, consumption mostly. Uh, it can't really go that way. So the the key probably is uh, whether there will be a possibility to uh, start uh, developing a tradable or export export se sector for exports. And, and, and work and come to, to some kind of a growth that way. That is not easy for many reasons. Partly one reason is that there isn't an obvious, it's, there is no obvious recovery in main markets, so it's a question whether that can be done. And obviously you also need to develop uh, the tradable sector, and, and there you need to have a relatively a strong real real exchange rate adjustment, and I have here uh, uh, the exchange rate movements, and you can see that, with the exception of of some flexible exchange rate countries, actually the real exchange rate is appreciating throughout uh, throughout the region. So it it has a negative uh, uh, effect on on competitiveness. So the prospects are not really as uh, all that good. Actually, to make this uh, as a sharp statement, I actually don't see where it will come from. So that's, uh, that's the question. I don't really see how are these uh, countries going to grow in, in the medium term. Finally, there is uh, th there's a point I want to make on EU policies, but maybe I can defer that for, for a discussion. All I have to say is that, all I want to say is that Essentially, when it comes to, to the so-called candidate and potential candidate countries, the EU, I, I have a slide on that, but I don't know whether I can... I, I, it will take a while to find it. <laughs> uh, the EU doesn't actually have instruments for short-term uh, short, short intervention in, in, the, in this uh, country. So, so most of what it can do is uh, piggyback on, on the IMF and, and support then IMF with some money. And, and in this group of countries, there are only two uh, decided to, to go for IMF uh, programs. 
the EU can't actually give money to others if they don't have a, an IMF uh, a program. That's sort of a, how these things. I understand that this is going to, there is a plan to relax this and to increase money uh, that could be available for macroeconomic stability. But basically, the EU is not in the stability business. It is more in medium-term and long-term business of uh, reforms and integration. So it, it's not of, of a big help in, in the time of crisis or in the immediate post-crisis uh, period, though, as I said, there are some changes that may come up. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Everyone, I, I am technologically challenged, so... I am as well. So, well, thank you very much, Vladimir, for this uh, overview. I thought that this was a good way to begin our panel. Um, I, Vladimir has, I think, sharply distinguished, uh, differentiated between uh, uh, the performance of the now member countries and the performance of uh, Southeastern Europe. Western Balkans as well as Romania and Bulgaria. Um, I, he would agree that he didn't, uh, this was not a very optimistic presentation. But. More than usual. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Not so bad as usual. <laughs> right, 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 right. I think I'll be worse. Yeah. But, I somehow, I think I'm going to leave it to the uh, to our next two speakers to see to what extent, when, and where they differ in their assessment as well as uh, predictions. Our second speaker this evening is Laza Kekic, who heads the Economist Intelligence Unit's lar largest regional team of analysts who provide economic, political, and business coverage for all the countries of Eastern Europe, including the former Soviet Union. He also heads the country forecasting services, which include economist intelligent units, country reports, as well as country forecasts. He is also the main editor of the World Investment Project's annual report. Over the past decade, Lazar Kekic has written extensively for the Economist Intelligence Unit and other outlets on these topics. He is also a frequent speaker at Economist and external conferences and seminars. And I'm also very pleased uh, to, to state that Laza was educated at LSE, where he obtained both his bachelor's and master's degree before he joined the Economist Intelligence Unit in 1993. Well, welcome back. There was also a period in between, but we won't. <laughs> but anyway, thank you very much, Professor Pamuk. I don't think... Do we yeah, you don't, I don't think so, as long as it's here. I was going to start by saying, having uh, listened to Peter and uh, Vladimir before, that uh, probably the order was very appropriate, that we were working our way from bad news to good news. You know, I was expecting a sort of, I'm somewhere in the middle, Vlada is the darkest, the most pessimistic, and we'll end up with a very cheerful presentation, I'm sure, and you all go happy. But uh, having heard uh, 
Vlada tonight, which is about the most optimistic or least pessimistic I've ever heard him. Though I can, I did hear you say, where will the growth come from in the future? So that's your sort of a claim to pessimism. But I'm afraid probably mine will maybe in some ways be even more pessimistic. So uh, cover some similar ground, I hope, from a somewhat different angle. Uh, and uh, the main purpose is uh, you know, hopefully to inform you to some extent, but also stimulate a discussion. So uh, looking at what's happened and what the prospects are, I, basically it's a good news and a bad news story. So let me start with the good news. Uh, one, it could have been worse. There's no doubt about that. We should take some solace in that. When we look at where this region was and the sort of underlying fragility and weaknesses of these economies, um, when I'm talking about the region, I'm basically talking about the former communist Balkans. I think it overlaps exactly with the EBRD's coverage. So there's basically eight economies. We don't have data on Kosovo. We don't cover Kosovo, but basically the six Western Balkan ones and the two Eastern Balkan ones remain in Bulgaria. So they are the ones I'm talking about, not Greece, not Turkey. And say not Kosovo. Uh, these days, uh, who knows how many countries in the region it changes by the month, by the year. Uh, so um, I've stopped saying the number of transition economies, but there's eight here that we're looking at and that my figure is uh, what we refer to. And I think pretty much uh, Vlada was looking at the same, though he mentioned Turkey a bit. And, so on. I will have nothing to say about Turkey, former communist Balkans. So I say it could have been worse if we look at these eight. Uh, the average contraction this year, we're all pretty much ballpark in our estimates now, which is not difficult after nine months. Uh, it would take some doing to get it badly wrong now, but you know, everything's possible. So for 2009, we're talking about a 5% contraction. Actually, Western Balkans, including Bulgaria and Romania, which did exceptionally badly, as uh, I think Vladimir already mentioned, especially Romania, despite its uh, advantage of having a flexible exchange rate, by no means a small advantage, by our estimates contracted uh, about 3.3, 3.4, which is actually good going. Keep in mind, for those who are not aware, you know, we have double-digit contractions in the Baltics. You know, these former star performers and poster children of the transition are basically disappearing off the map, literally. We have Ukraine contracting by double digits. We have some of the Central Europeans doing much worse, Hungary. Slovakia and Czech, which were expected to do much better, aren't doing much better. In fact, Poland is the only good performer in the whole region. So it could have definitely been much worse, and given the fragility, we could have had macroeconomic and financial meltdown. Why didn't worse happen? I think it's pretty, more or less, pretty obvious. They, it's the, some of the advantages of backwardness and being less integrated, so less exposed, some of them. The bailout, certainly, IMF and the EU. Uh, I'm sure we'll uh, hear more about what exactly they did to save the day from Peter, but sometimes, you know, it's easy to be a bit cynical because a lot of these models that were touted by these organizations had at least something to do with the crisis itself, the transition crisis, and then they did bail out and they came to the rescue. Okay, fine. So, uh, and also the IMF has been extraordinarily lenient. You know, conditionality's basically gone out the window. There's no conditionality. They've just doled out money. But it's not conditionality removed. It's conditionality deferred, because that will start to bite next year and the year after, perhaps. The third point, which maybe Peter will cast more light on, uh, the data on remittances is very patchy and unclear. 
a lot of because a lot of these countries, as you know, depend on remittances for workers abroad, and there was a large fear that these would collapse completely. And we know very little actually what happened to them on the whole. We have a partner that gives us some Western Union. Nobody knows better what they are, but even they're not clear exactly what's been happening. But it seems they haven't been as bad as feared. So this has helped. This uh, year in Serbia, it's larger than last year. Well, larger than last year. That's not. Oh, well, the remittances inflow larger. Yeah, so we even counter uh, cyclical. Right. So uh, and also certain resilience, obviously, in these economies. So I think that sort of explains it. Still, we shouldn't go overboard. Performance has been very bad, uh, except uh, Albania is the only country that will have positive growth, and we heard before the range of estimates uh, for this year contraction, sort of a second transition. In some cases, a third transition recession. And to keep things in perspective, you know, back to the future, if you look at 1989, index equals 100, given all the difficulties in measuring GDP, I'm sure you've heard about. Basically, in 2009, we're back to more or less 100 for Balkans. So, no, no advance in 20 years. Even more tellingly, uh, this is something also that Peter has in the past, I know, done work on looking at, you know, people's subjective evaluation where they are and the quality of life in general. Uh, and uh, I'll mention this a few times in the discussion tonight, so I'll just mention it to you now. This very useful survey by Gallup of Balkan, Balkan Monitor. I highly recommend it to everybody. You can easily find it on the web. They've done it 206, 208, 209. It's a fountain of information, very interesting, about attitudes. This is the Western Balkans, not Romania and Bulgaria. Some even very amusing things as well more like black humor, but still very, very, very informative. Uh, so this reveals that the subjective assessment of life in these countries is pretty woeful. Um, related to these life satisfaction surveys, the Constant Intelligence Unit recently has uh, calculated something that we call a quality of life index, which basically looks at the various drivers of quality of life or that are related to, to subjective assessments, you know, everything from GDP to health to community, family, life, uh, some eight, ten factors in total. It won't surprise that in these countries basically I think can be defended very strongly. The quality of life in 2009 is inferior to what it was in 1989. This is especially true in the former Yugoslav states. There are two exceptions to this which won't surprise. Albania and Romania, and this is simply the case because life was so awful in Ceausescu, <laughs> Romania, and not much better, obviously, in uh, Hoxha and immediately post-Hoxha period in Albania. So it won't surprise that in these countries it could have hardly got worse. So despite all the difficulties, it's better. But certainly not the case in former Yugoslavia, not in any of the republics, and basically, I think, for reasons that are clear. And even in terms of, as I said, GDP, we are no better than we were in 1989. Second, so, you know, I've been talking about the good news here, and I've sort of lapsed already into the bad news story. But let's finish with the good news before we get really serious about the bad news. Secondly, there's been no marked social unrest or further worsening of the political situation, you know, despite everything, in 2009, yet, I emphasize yet. Um, surveys like the one I mentioned show that increasing proportion of population in the Western Balkans don't expect conflict. You think, well, that's not a big deal? Well, I think it is a big deal. In the introduction to this survey, a well-known Bulgarian political scientist, Ivan Krastev, said, well, this is peace without prosperity. Well, I say don't knock it. 
pieces means quite a lot and you know if you can't have prosperity like Vada shows us that they can't and uh, it's not a good picture you know, granted when I talk about prospects the fact that peace the preservation piece is quite likely is important an increasing proportion surveys show are interested in regional cooperation before we met here I said sort of cynically that seems to be maybe disproportionate influence of uh, Bosnian Serbs and Croats who are interested in cooperation with, Bos with Serbia and Croatia but over and beyond that, to be serious, there is in the region, with one exception, by the way, Albania. Albanians, uh, decreasing proportion is the interest in regional cooperation. But the Albanians are quite an exception in many things in the survey, as you'll see if you look at it. So uh, there's other things, improvement in Macedonian and Albanian ties. People were worrying a lot about this. Still some are worried. It's quite clear that there's been improvement in that. And, uh, you know, if we go on, we can also look a third positive. There's been a considerable adjustment in these external imbalances. It's forced, but still, if we look at the, basically in 2008, the average current account deficit GDP in the ratio, ratio in the whole region of these eight countries was over 14%. We estimated it under 7 in 2009. That's an extraordinary adjustment at relatively limited cost in terms of output loss compared to some, if you look at what the output declines have been elsewhere. So that's a positive. Now, fourth point on reforms. Observers have said, well, no great backsliding. Okay. And then there's others who point optimistically, well, out of crisis will come rejuvenation reform. Well, I tend to take that with a bit of pinch of salt. I don't think it will happen. And secondly, what reforms? You know, people a lot, the standard narrative, almost forget that there's been a Lehman Brothers, forget what's happened in the Western world in terms. It's as if some standard model of reforms is still, uh, still relevant. In fact, I remember Peter saying at a seminar a few months ago, one thing this crisis has shown is the need for more humility amongst economists. And, you know, I would certainly agree with that. But, uh, you know, having commended him here, he won't mind if I pull his leg a bit about something from the transition report. So the transition report has this wonderful formulation, you know, a key point that emerges from the report. And, um, you know, Peter, I'm putting on the spot, but Peter can have the last word and the last laugh. Transition region is in crisis, but the transition is not. Wonderfully Hegelian formulation, <laughs> dialectic. You know. uh, I, I've been trying to make sense of this, but seriously, how can the region be in crisis and be the worst performing emerging market region of anywhere? This is the transition region as a whole, which has performed on average worse than even the Balkans. If this transition model did not have something to do with it, so transition region in crisis, but transition lives on and reforms have not been damaged. I'm not sure about that, but we can talk about more in the discussion. And a lot of these ingredients of the flawed model, which is uh, whether it's broken or not, is too strong, but already Vlad has mentioned some points, low domestic savings, the dependence on consumer-led credit expansion, the fixed exchange rates, the reliance on foreign capital inflows which uh, basically, not to put too fine a point on it, except for FDI, foreign direct investment, is beneficial, I think, on balance. All other forms are not. And there is a point that's made sometimes that foreign inflows, well, maybe they were not positive in other emerging markets, but they were in Eastern Europe. I think that's another point on the transition. I would dispute that. 
Finally, the final sort of piece of good news before I really launch into the bad news and, you know, my, uh, I call it my wrist slasher slide where I sort of list the bad news. But let's have one more upbeat point, which is maybe a counterintuitive one in some ways. Well, EU's, uh, you know, been lambasted a lot, the membership perspective is receding, all that's true. You know, none of these countries are going to join the EU soon, except Croatia possibly. I mean, Germans who have the last word on this have been quite explicit as of late. At some point it might happen, but it's not going to happen soon. So the perspective has been receding, which you know many analysts see as the be-all, the standard narrative, which is actually, frankly, getting a bit tiresome and lazy, unless you know they all join the EU over the next few years, it'll be the end of the world as we know it. Well, it might be the end of the world, they're expected. But anyway, there have been some positives. Uh, the visa liberalization, which is the, uh, the important thing for some of the countries, not all of them, the ones who have been left out, well, some of them will get it as well, but at least three of the important ones will get this. This is one of the main benefits of EU membership anyway. Uh, the trade liberalization, which uh, thankfully, despite the pressures for protectionism, protectionism in the West, there hasn't been that much, uh, a little bit. And also some faint signs, like in this poll, this is counterintuitive, that finally there seems to be a greater readiness of people in this region to take responsibility for their own fate. You know, the abandonment of the cargo cult type mentality that salvation will and only can come from the EU, and there's nothing we poor Balkans can do about fate. Yeah. So I guess that's sort of a traditional way of looking at life. But there's a few signs. Uh, recently that uh, they're more prepared to take uh, response, including in this survey. Does now, may, I, may uh, I come in at this point? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to end in a minute. Oh, okay. But no, go on. No, no, I, I thought that No, no, were, go on. If no, it's, go ahead. No, I was No, waiting. please do. <laughs> I thought that even in your more optimistic comments, you were not entirely optimistic, so I thought that you... Oh, no, no, I'm getting... No, shorten no, your no, pessimistic no, comments. Now I'm getting into the pessimism, but it'll but, be very quick. But, uh, it'll be yeah, very okay. quick. Okay. So if we look at the prospects, you know, as I said, my wrist lashes <laughs> slide where we looked at, I mean, basically a lot of the ingredients of what we know, and I said, you know, we have to be humble, but what we know about long-term growth uh, it's not really good news as far as this region is concerned. You know, things like institutions, demographics, uh, in terms of population trends, which policy can do very little about, are not good for Eastern Europe in general, or in particularly bad for the, for the Balkans. Uh, it seems that after this crisis, you know, we said this is the, is it back to business as usual? So let me sort of end quickly and leave for the further discussion, elaboration why I think it won't be back to business as usual. Uh, the recovery in, other, in the Western Europe on which the region depends so much is at best likely to be very weak and fragile for some years to come. Uh, it seems that the revival of foreign capital inflows, particularly FDI, which is the very uh, useful form, is not going to happen soon. There was a large collapse in FDI inflows into the region, which actually FDI had picked up quite a lot in recent years. If you look at penetration of foreign capital in some of these countries, it's higher than Central European for some of them. It's higher than in Poland, it's higher than in Slovenia. So it's not true that there hasn't been foreign capital. It's true that it hasn't always gone, it certainly hasn't gone into manufacturing and so on. But, you know, as economists, we were always thought that we shouldn't be too stroppy about sectoral. <coughs> representation. 
But there was a collapse, one of the worst in the emerging market world, over 50% collapse in, in um, 2009. And this isn't likely to recover soon. Political risk, very, very high. And if we have a lower external demand and lower trade, that obviously is not going to be a growth engine and doesn't overwhelm for what Vlado talked about, export diversification. Let me, just my final sentence, just be a little more optimistic than Vlado on that. that I don't think uh, necessarily if we're not talking about strong catch-up growth, and there is no way you're going to get back soon to pre-208. Under our estimates, they were, they were growing way beyond potential one of the few emerging market regions that were. It wasn't sustainable, probably even had we not had the external crisis. So it doesn't mean that there will be no growth. At the very least, you know, these are, this is a small region. EU can bail them out. They can be kept on life support. And even more positive than that, even if you grow, recover from a very low level at 3 or 4%, which isn't uh, saying very much, given where they're starting from, it still allows even a little catch-up, given that Western Europe will be growing at best about one and isn't likely to cut back to its long-term 2% trend. So it's not the end of the world, and I don't, as again I emphasize, I certainly don't foresee any great political crises region-wide in terms of return to war, even though political risk of various forms are high. And on the last positive note, it seems like at least very faint evidence from this survey from Bosnia, from Serbia, from Croatia, Macedonia, to some extent that people are finally growing up a bit, you know, prepared to realize that, you know, they have to take some responsibility for their own fate and salvation is not just going to come from outside. Thank you very much. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much, Laza. You have added many additional dimensions I haven't uh, detected major disagreements so far between the two of you, although <clears throat> perhaps in the discussion some of this will come out. And uh, also, oh, I'll, Vladimir focused more on the, the last decade. You brought the discussion a bit f f forward and uh, you've given us some sense of what we, sh we should expect in the near future. Um, now we have then uh, uh, surveyed the region, the developments in the region, and perhaps now it's time, good time to discuss about European Union, the European uh, policies towards the region, and our third speaker, Peter Sanfei, is going to deal with those aspects. Peter is a lead economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development in London. He has worked extensively on the region with the focus on Western Balkans. He was the lead author of a 2004 EBRD publication, Spotlight on Southeastern Europe, an overview of private sector activity and investment. He's also an editor of the annual EBRD transition report and EBRD working paper series. Peter had received his PhD degree in economics from Yale University in 1992. He was a lecturer in economics at the University of Kent at Canterbury before joining the EBRD. His main research interests are in the fields of macroeconomics, labor economics, economies in transition, and he's published many articles on these topics, 
in international academic journals. Thank you for <coughs> joining that panel. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Pamuk, and uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a, <coughs> a great pleasure to be here uh, back in the LSE and to have the chance to uh, discuss and debate with you about this fascinating region and to be on a panel with uh, really my friends, Vladimir and Laza, who uh, we were joking beforehand, I think I'm seeing more of Laza and his wife, Joan, who's also an expert on the region than I'm seeing of my own family <laughs> these days. So, uh, last night I was on a panel with Joan and here I am now with, with Laza. Um, I, I listened with great interest um, to what Vladimir and Laza said and I actually, um, I'm not sure what I can add to that very much other than a few points maybe about the international uh, community and its role because actually um, I mean we're joking beforehand about you know moving from pessimism to optimism but uh, if, if you're expecting a big dose of optimism on the region from me I'm, I'm, I have to warn you now I'm probably going to disappoint you it is by nature I think to be optimistic in general I mean this glass is it mm. half empty or half full I, I, I would say half full mm -hmm. Vladimir would probably say half empty, and Laza would say, who knows? <laughs> I may even say empty. Yes, yes, he would say empty. That's an illusion. Yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, uh, Laza said his slide was a bit wrist slashing, but in fact, I, uh, if I heard correctly, I thought he was ending up on something of an optimistic note. And I think, um, I, think I skipped. The <laughs> um, I, I think, uh, you know, when I look back in the past year, it has been a bit of a humbling time for us as economists. I remember a year ago launching our 2008 transition report, which had projections uh, for 2009 for Southeastern Europe, for the whole transition region that, that looked laughable now. You know, Romania plus 4% this year. Now we think it'll be minus 8 um, hmm. Uh, that's probably the worst example, but the others are all pretty much the same. We, we thought there would be modest growth this year, and in fact, now we realize, uh, I mean, our forecast this year is even slightly worse than the EIU's. It's minus 6.2% for the region on a, weight, on a weighted average basis. So, um, now looking back again a year ago, I, I think we, uh, you know, there were some who were arguing, I guess implicitly, we felt that maybe this region would be insulated from the crisis and wouldn't be affected as, as badly. There are others though who, who were really, particularly towards the end of the year, who thought this is going to have a disastrous effect on Southeastern Europe, that it's, it's vulnerable, there'll be street protests, there'll be, uh, the institutions are weak, the governments are very weak. Um, and I guess the outcome has been somewhere in the middle and, and that's why the, you know, our, our forecast for Southeastern Europe is actually pretty much identical to, for our forecast for the region as a, the, trans, the whole 29 countries. Um, uh, you know, it's also minus 6.2%. Um, Lazo mentioned that, I mean, a line I had actually written down before I came, so it wasn't coordinated, but it, it also it could have been worse. Hmm. Um, and I think maybe it's worth listing uh, uh, some of the things that could have happened and, and didn't happen. I think primarily there'd been no uh, twin crisis. By a twin crisis, we mean the sort of things you've seen in previous emerging market crises where you have a, a currency collapse uh, combined often with the uh, banking sector collapse and, and 
and uh, think of, uh, say, Argentina, you know, seven eight years ago. Um, so that has not happened. There hasn't been much in the way of capital flight. Um, you know, the, the region, southeastern Europe, I was just checking the figures again, it's attracted over the last 20 years about $130 billion in, in foreign direct investment. And, uh, you know, investors, I think, have gone in with open eyes, to, willing to take risks, but, you know, have, uh, have recognized the long-term benefits of being there and haven't, by and large, pulled out. We haven't seen uh, much in the way of street po protests, strikes. I mean, even governments, uh, you know, some of them, when we've had elections, have done quite well. Like in, in Albania, the government was returned. In Montenegro, earlier this year, uh, in Macedonia, we've had a presidential election where the, the really party candidates also won. We had a change of government in, in Bulgaria, but um, you know, by and large, I think I think there has been an understanding among the general populace that this is really an event of, of global proportions and. and uh, uh, not just the you know messing up of the, the, their local politicians. Um, remittances was mentioned as well. We were looking into uh, 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 my colleagues here uh, into these figures, and it does appear that they uh, are holding up better than expected. Um, although the data are um, are hard to get hold of. Uh, even tourism in Croatia. I was in Croatia last May, and, and they were talking pessimistically about the season being down this year by 20%, and now it seems that now that the season is pretty much over, it was down maybe 1%, 2 3%. Um, so I think there are a lot of things that could have gone wrong and, and didn't go wrong. I think, um, I think some credit should go to the countries themselves, to the, the people, the firms, but also the, the governments and central banks. They, they uh, you know, politicians in this region do not have a very high reputation, but they, I think, by and large, uh, have avoided doing anything too crazy um, to mess things up. I think they've recognized that their room for maneuver has been pretty limited, especially on the fiscal side, and I think they, uh, so they have avoided, you know, doing great harm. Um, I think central banks, by and large, have uh, reacted broadly appropriately to the, uh, crisis. Um, so the region has shown resilience and has shown a bit of maturity and I think that, that ties in with uh, Laza's uh, uh, last point. Um, now coming to the role of the international community, um, I mean from the EBRD side we've tried to do what we can, we've raised our investments about 50% this year across the region as a whole. So I mean we're you know, <laughs> crises are, are are good for international institutions because it gives us a you know something to do and something to you know really be useful for. But the one institution, of course, that's got most attention is the IMF, which is you know a year, eighteen months ago, it was uh, literally closing down in the region. It was closing offices and uh, and moving out. Now it's it's back in in uh, in uh, firstly in Serbia, then in Romania, uh, and then Bosnia. Yeah. And perhaps we'll uh, we'll come to agreements with some of the other countries uh, in the coming uh, in the coming months. Uh, so that I think has helped stabilize things, um, and not just because of the money that the IMF provides, but but also it gives uh, it gives, if you like, a bit of political cover mm -hmm. 
to local politicians who, and I think we see this especially in Serbia, where I think difficult things that have to be done, it's very hard to get agreement when you have a big coalition government, but if you, if you say to people, well, it's the IMF agreement is important and it's part of that, then, then I think people can understand that, 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 that these things have to be done, or at least it makes it a little bit easier to, to do them. But uh, what has also been very important, I think, has been the role of uh, private banks in this crisis. Now, there was uh, a fear. I, I'm sure most of you know that, that the, region, the region's banking sectors are dominated by foreign-owned banks, um, typically 70, 80, even more than 90% in a few cases of banking assets are controlled by uh, subsidiaries of foreign-owned banks, mostly from Austria or Italy or Greece or France. Um, and uh, of course there was a fear that these banks would then pull their money out and that would really you know, put some of these banks in, in jeopardy and that could lead to the, the kind of banking collapse. Now, uh, here I think we've seen something quite unusual and that's uh, actually a major cooperation effort between the foreign owned banks, the host regulators, the home regulators and the international institutions all working together to try and ensure that that did not happen. This is known as, some of you may be aware of the, uh, it's called the Vienna Initiative, so-called because the, the first important meeting took place in, in Vienna and Austria is a national place, natural place to have it because so many Austrian banks are exposed to the region. And I think what has happened there is not banks acting as charities and, and uh, you know, out of goodness of their heart supporting the region, but really it's, it's, uh, it's been a very hard-nosed decision that these banks spent a lot of resources in, in gaining market share in these countries, developing, uh, you know, these developing markets and especially developing financial sector markets and recognizing that it's all in their interest to actually <coughs> act collectively in this difficult time and publicly signal that they, they intend to maintain their, their exposure to the countries. And, and, and so far that I think, you know, that, that agreement has has held in those countries where it has taken place. It's been in those countries that have an IMF program because it's really part of the, the whole package of IMF support, you know, and it's about not just the IMF giving money, but it's about bailing in the, the, the foreign-owned uh, banks as well. So I think that that is something that has really helped maintain confidence in, uh, uh, throughout, the, throughout the region. Now, uh, coming to the... Um, the outlook, and I'll, I'll be quite brief on this, and then we'll we'll open up the discussion. I uh, we you know I really I, I find myself very much in agreement with what you know Vladimir and, and as I've said, I, uh, there's no there's no real chance I think of any kind of rapid growth in in the foreseeable future. We we expect next year roughly one percent growth mm. on average mm. um, for the region. Um, so we expect most countries to have some modest growth. There are only negative forecasts for next year's Bulgaria, where we still see a bit, of a, uh, a bit of a downturn. But the others we see, we see growing next year. But but beyond that, uh, it, it, it's really highly uncertain where where the growth will come from. I, I you know I, I'm echoing what uh, what Vladimir said, and, and, and as also um, because I think the the model beforehand which you know really relied on substantial credit growth uh, inflows of foreign capital and, and the, the mirror of that being high current account deficits I, I think that's that's not going to 
come back. I mean, I, I don't wish to disparage the role of foreign banks because I think although they were partly responsible for this maybe excessive boom, they've also helped to mitigate the, um, the effects of the crisis for, for reasons I said. But I, I think it's going to be some years of growth that will probably exceed the Eurozone average, but, but will not be anything like what we've had um, in the more recent years. But I do think still, you know, um, coming back to a little bit of optimism, I, I do think that, you know, taking the medium to long term, this is a region that, that will continue to converge. I think that it will stay stable. Um, it will, uh, I think, continue to advance towards EU membership for those countries, the majority that are not yet members. And, and indeed, let's not forget that this year, you know, most of them have actually made tangible progress and that, I mean, Croatia uh, is inching closer to the key, that it had a problem with its neighbor, Slovenia, for some time, but that, that has been hopefully unblocked in, in recent months. We've seen Albania and Montenegro put forward applications. We've seen Macedonia finally be recommended, at least, to have a, a starting date for, for, for talks. And I think we see Serbia, which is really a key country here, um, you know, champing up a bit, and I think ready, once they can solve this Mladic issue, you know, ready to uh, very quickly, I think, move forward towards an application and candidacy and, and, uh, and then uh, negotiating membership. So I think also, again, to look for more positives, the, I think there is still quite a bit of potential to expand trade, both within the region and uh, externally. And I think there's a big uh, infrastructure deficit in this region, which you can see as a negative, you know, uh, the roads and the railways are all pretty, you know, a lot of them are in pretty terrible shape and so on, but that, you know, the, that implies potential for lots of big projects that can really upgrade these and, and it will take time, but, but that in turn will, I think, generate some, some more growth. So um, I, can't, uh, I can't end without <coughs> commenting on uh, Lazar's uh, point. <laughs> It's, I wrote it down somewhere about it because I've forgotten what we said in the transition report, but uh, here we are, yes, yeah. Uh, the, transition region, <laughs> the transition region is in crisis, but transition is, is not. Well, what we were trying to say is, uh, yes, of course, the, you know, there's a deep recession here, people are suffering, and, and uh, uh, that by, by most people's definition is a, a, what is happening is a crisis. Uh, but I think uh, when you look at you know the accumulation of reforms over the years and, and uh, you know where the countries have come from, I know it's been a slow progress the process, and it's you know um, you know these things take a lot of time. But there's been no serious argument about reversing many of these forms and going back to something that we had you know 20 years ago. I, I really think that. Uh, there are lessons to be learned, uh, and I, I've not yet learned them myself. I don't know what what they really are, but I think there are lessons to be learned about how we might manage uh, growth in the future, how we might regulate better uh, access to credit, access to foreign currency loans, about um, uh, about how you might conduct fiscal policy in the good times and prepare better for the bad times, things like that. But I don't think there's any serious debate about reversing the whole. Um, transition process itself, and uh, that, that was the point we were trying to get across in, 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 
Thank you very much. I, I kind of guessed that we would be saving the most optimistic comments yes. to the end, yes. and Peter did not disappoint us. Um, I also thought that this was a, a quite well-behaved panel, that perhaps they have been speaking to each other for too long, too often, <laughs> but there, I thought there was a good deal of agreement and very little disagreement, even though they tried hard to find something that they could disagree on. One of the things that uh, I thought really uh, that came out of the uh, comments of our three speakers was that just as Europe and the international economy was the source of the recent crisis, Europe and the international economy, but international institutions including the IMF, clearly is acting here as an anchor for, uh, for the, the region in terms of uh, institutional support uh, and I would say some, some funds but I would also say that the, the promise of membership uh, although it may be distant for some I think is acting as an important anchor at, at the very least, in terms of uh, providing restraint and, and uh, some hope for government policies in the region. I think all of, all of our speakers have underlined the responsive, res well, responsive behavior of governments with respect to monetary policy, fiscal policy. There is something there, I think, related to Europe. Anyway, I, I will just leave this here for perhaps comments uh, for the speakers, but I, we would like to open it up now to your comments and we would like to take a number of uh, questions and comments and if you would like to direct a question to any of our speakers, please try to identify to which of our speakers you'd like to address this question or you could of course address it to all of them. Yes. I've got uh, just uh, two uh, questions or comments, questions ready. Um, I, well, I'd like to address them to all the speakers, but the, the first one, particularly to Vladimir uh, um, you showed clearly, very interestingly, the um, role of remittances being tremendously important in Western Balkan countries, um, in many, several of those countries being practically sort of labour export economies in a way. Um, and it's also quite remarkable how the remittances appear to have held up in the face of weakening labour markets in, in the West, where is the source of these remittances. And when you, you would have expected that with people being, with migrant workers being laid off, losing their jobs, mm. they would have remittances before, mm. and apparently they haven't done so. Mm. Like, so, I mean, could it be that um, there's a changing behaviour of the
mm. still have jobs. Mm. And so maybe a sort of delay or lagged effect as mm. unemployment continues to increase, mm. that the reasons is perhaps they've held mm. up this year, but it might fall mm. next year mm. with pretty serious consequences. Mm. So that's the first point. And then um, the second point is about the role of institutions and uh, whether institutions, I mean, there's been a lot of um, ideas or uh, theories about the, the importance of institutions in supporting economic growth in the last 10 years or so, uh, and this has been applied in the Western Balkans and in the, the transition countries, and with, um, I suppose in a way this is uh, a question directly Peter, but to all of you. Um, and so you, you would have expected perhaps that those countries with better, somehow better, and better economic institutions would have third better in response to the crisis. But it seems quite the opposite. Inverse. Fact, you know, the, the countries which joined the EU mm. and the candidate, well, the leading candidate country in like Croatia, seem to have had the most uh, largest drop mm. in, in economic growth, whereas the countries <coughs> that sort of in respect of institutional performance have done better. Mm. Particularly Albania, I don't I wondered if you had any it's remarkable that Albania mm. really um, uh, has positive growth. And do you have any sort of explanation for that? Mm. Um, is it just the advanced duty bank or something else? Let's try to get some more comments and questions, yes. This is, this is more comment and possibly a question because um, it's very rare to hear Laza and, and, and Vladimir uh, agree <laughs> the benefits of the crisis. Yes, 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 yes. But I think both of you pointed to something which has been a, a lasting, lasting issue in the region, and that is the problem of the industrialization. Mm. So, um, you know, and both of you ended up with with this um, question: uh, where the growth will will uh, come from? You know, whether this whole model of export-led uh, growth is in crisis, as it were. So my, you know, my question is, uh, to what extent do you think um, the deterioration in export performance in the Western Balkans is uh, um, really made worse, uh, has been made worse by the crisis, and whether we can see uh, some recovery afterwards? Um, and you know, because if you take if you take it into 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 a larger picture, if you take a larger picture, the whole model as, uh, as such is in crisis. I mean, this this uh, idea that you know you have uh, probably many years of fairly depressed de demand in the West, which will reflect on on what will be happening in the in the Western Balkans. So, the, uh, which leads me to, to the other uh, question, or, or, or for you, uh, what I would like to hear is, is, is your comments on, is there any merit in this idea of, of regional cooperation as a framework of improving competitiveness of Western Balkans and eventually generating some, some, some uh, export growth? Mm. Yes. Uh, I'd like to ask about the uh, prospects for fiscal stimulus in the region. Um, Lazar referred to the possibility of third uh, conditionality with the IMF loans. Um, I think I might think the IMF for pressuring Serbia to reduce their uh, public sector payroll. 
Um, but, I mean, is that is that the right thing to do in the current crisis, or should they be uh, going down the fiscal stimulus route? And also, Pete mentioned um, the infrastructure deficit and the opportunity that that provides. Um, will the IMF's conditions handle that at all? Okay. Shall we return to the panel? Sure. Okay. Why don't we start with you? Well, uh, Will's question is very interesting on, on, on remittances. We actually did uh, did s several studies, actually quite a lot of studies on remittances before the crisis. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, the one of the findings uh, which was remarkable was that traditionally the, the, the remittances uh, have a, a counter-cyclical uh, uh, behavior in the Balkans, especially in former Yugoslavia. Not necessarily, there is a difference between older migrants and younger migrants, and that's not necessarily Bulgaria, Romania. But again, uh, almost everywhere where Albanian population lives, there, there is a counter-cyclical element to it. That has been, of course, uh, on, on the experience of a different type of crisis before, the, the, because this one is not a crisis necessarily only in these countries, but also where in the countries where these migrants live. So that, that point is uh, what you say about perhaps things changing in the future is, 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 is certainly a possibility. One of the reasons why this seems to be the case is that it's not, uh, again, there, is, there was a very good study done for us, uh, it, for the Institute, uh, and it doesn't, it seems to be the case that it's not really altruism that, that is uh, uh, driving uh, remittances as, as we seem to think uh, usually. But it is more like an investment uh, type of a relationship. So it, as, as long as uh, the migrant doesn't go bankrupt, uh, even if, if, if he or she loses job, a job in, in Western Europe, he's still, they are still on some kind of a support. The amount of, of, of money going back essentially is a constant or, or if you add altruism, then it, it actually is, it tends to grow. So this is one of the explanations. But now, of course, if, if there is a, a huge rise of, of, uh, of uh, unemployment in the West, of course, that will have a, an effect. However, it also seems to be the case that some of the migrants or the migrants from, from, from some of the countries, former Yugoslavia would be one, Albanian also, seem to be able to keep their jobs uh, more than, than you would expect. The, the so-called temporary migrants, which is most more of a phenomenon from Bulgaria, Romania, the new migrant sort of countries that go to Greece or Spain and, and do uh, agricultural work and so on, they may actually have, have problems. Some of the internal migrants may have problems because Montenegro used to and partly Croatia used to import a lot of people within the region and that may actually go, go down because these are essentially 
seasonal migrants for, for tourism or, or, or construction work. So construction suffers a lot, so this so-called of seasonal. But so far, remittances have actually performed uh, to the extent that we can believe the figures, or to the extent that we have figures at all, this is another issue, uh, have performed better than, than expected. Uh, as far as the institutions are concerned, and how they play, well, the, the countries that are actually doing better are Poland on one hand, which is not a small country, and, and actually in, in uh, if you weight uh, performances in, in the, then Central Europe actually doesn't do all that badly because Poland is a, a huge country. These are small countries. <coughs> and, and also Albania on the other hand. No, do institutions play a, a role in that? One, one really wonders. I think in Albanian case, the advantage is that there is a lot of multilateral investment, investment from multilateral institutions. And these sort of don't go away. It's not like you take a credit from, from a commercial bank. Uh, so it doesn't, that, that would be one thing. They have a lot of infrastructure going, pro, projects going on, and this seems to be holding up, and, and that sort of supports uh, uh, some growth. It, 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 there is a decline, but some growth. In some other countries, Albania would be another, also an example, but Montenegro also, they have actually been able to get uh, foreign investment, foreign direct investment. And in fact, uh, foreign direct investment this year is higher in, in Montenegro than in, in the year before. Uh, because you have specific, specific areas. Peter, I think, mentioned the infrastructure. There's energy, tourism, sometimes, and so on. So whether this will hold up in the future is, is, hard, is hard to say. And again, when it comes to foreign investment, it's not easy to, to see whether institutions, which exactly institutions are good for <laughs> foreign investment. Sometimes if you have a, 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 a stable country, which means an, 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 an authoritative leader, it can actually be good for, for investments, though obviously institutions by some other criterion are. are. When it comes to Croatia, I think this is a, a, a you see, in Slovenia, the, the, the decline is strong, but the, 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 the means to counteract are there. It goes a bit to, to the fiscal stimulus issue. Slovenia, being part of Euro and part of EU, actually could do a, a fiscal, fiscal support. And though the drop is very high, I think it will be probably higher than in Croatia, somewhere maybe above 7% in this year. Uh, there is not such a pessimism uh, in, in Slovenia as you find in, in Croatia because it's quite possible that Croatia will this year have a, a GDP decline of 6% and maybe another one or two next year. The reason being is that you don't really have instruments in, in Croatia to do anything. Uh, you have a very fixed exchange rate which is everybody's uh, uh, darling and you have uh, uh, now uh, fiscal uh, contraction. 
and it will continue next year. So you can't really see where, where is this, how is this country going to, to, to do anything uh, when it comes to... This is not the case uh, in, in, other, in other countries. IMF program actually, for instance, would actually help Croatia in this respect, you, the question of it. IMF would probably suggest uh, some correction in the exchange rate and some fiscal stimulus. That would be the IMF suggestion. IMF actually supports what you see now is that the IMF has, first of all, given up on all the conditionalities. This is, this is currently there are no conditionalities, so-called structural conditionalities anymore. But there is an, a, 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 a concern not for short-term but for medium-term fiscal sustainability. But the, the key word is sustainability. So that, if you think about it, that obviously depends on how much you can grow, not how much, the de not on the not the, not the, the, the amount of the deficit, not of the, how high the deficit is, but whether it increases the debt to GDP ratio or not. And that, of course, depends on the growth. So if you don't go, grow, then it is a problem. And that would be the, that will be the problem uh, for Croatia. And I think IMF would actually have pro-growth uh, 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 proposals or, or advices uh, for Croatia. For other countries, that's a different story. Uh, what else was there? Well, uh, regional cooperation, I mean, not Carl. Well, can we perhaps pass on to sure. Laza and Peter? Sure. And I, if I'm hoping to have another round of yeah, no problem questions, no problem so perhaps you could... Very quickly, I think there were a lot of uh, good points. I'm sorry if I don't, uh, practically all of them, I thought quite a lot of interesting remittances have been already dealt with. I think I take the point about the late reaction. And, uh, it's interesting, though, the late reaction might have some uh, effect in the opposite direction, because if you do have a shock, which is likely you will have a further rise in unemployment in Western Europe, some of these migrants might uh, have to return home and then they take their money with them home. So in that sense, that could be an offsetting on the remittances. Uh, in terms of fiscal stimulus, yes, very little room for maneuver. I think withdrawal of the support from the, or, you know, if they start to seriously imposing conditions, I mean, this year there were not just no structural conditions, there were no conditions of any kind, even macroeconomic and fiscal, I mean, uh, without precedence, the leniency, but uh, IMF has uh, said it's not going to remain as lenient, and we've already seen the effects of that. If it is true, which I think it is, again, not, I think it's worth emphasizing how fragile uh, circumstances are in the region. I think I would say one really needs to, if you're looking at this region, one lesson of recent developments, you need to think outside the box and, you know, if need be, even question some conventional conclusions which have been found wanting because uh, what has happened recently is quite extraordinary. And just take another point, all of us have been banding around a lot of figures which a lot of them don't look bad, but one thing we have to keep in mind is just how also deficient the statistics are here, which is again why I emphasize some of these surveys. Uh, the results of these surveys for some of the countries are really at variance with the official figures on performance, uh, just to take one or two. If you take a question on how difficult people have in meeting ends meet or paying utility bills, which is quite a good question, they suggest far sharper falls in consumption than the f official figures suggest 
I mean, a fall of 3% in the official figure, say, in Serbia is frankly implausible given indirect evidence that emerges from surveys and even common sense. So that's a big thing. But just to set in context also, you know, what the populations might think of these. Um, surveys show that in Britain and France, two-thirds of people don't trust official statistics. So can you imagine what proportions are in the Balkans? So I would again emphasize this sort of... Uh, you know, the lid's been kept on it, but it's simmering. I really do think the potential for, given the really extraordinary dissatisfaction and anomie in this region, the potential for something happening shouldn't be dismissed. And I'm not, even though Peter always sets it out very reasonably, and listening to him, you know, it's sort of hard even to disagree, but then stepping back, I'm not sure that if you really look, you know, with a cold eye, that even the transition is assured. Because again, you know, 20 years, what has it brought? And you know, it'll be all right on the night, is how I react to some of the things you said. So I think one should be prepared for surprises. And then the question is, how can we sort of preclude some of the nastiest surprises? Let me just quickly finish with my, maybe attempt to answer some of the more concrete questions. You know, Vesna's good point about, you know, can something be done about expert performance? I think one thing that Vladimir and I have agreed in the past is on the importance of overvalued exchange rates and the ones with flexible rates, say, where there's been some correction in Serbia, for example, Romania, even though by our assessments the Romanian correction is insufficient, we actually think the Lou is still overvalued. I don't know if you share that. There's no Romanians here, so you can share your assessment of that. Obviously, uh, difficult things to assess. But uh, whether that's uh, grounds for some sort of export takeoff, well, I'm not sure. Though the final point on that is uh, you said correction in Croatia. And uh, even though it's easy to identify where the rates are overvalued, in many cases where the economies are heavily, as you know, euroized, it's very hard to get out of it once you get into that situation. So I'm not sure, again, optimistic uh, conclusion on that. And just finally, that some of these uh, more backward ones have done better. Well, again, I don't think that probably surprising. We all pointed out that obviously they were less exposed. And we do have, again, a half joke in uh, looking at the region. We talk about the axis of success. You know, countries like Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, which have <coughs> at high rates simply because they're less integrated. So uh, I'm not sure that is something to be commended or that is uh, lasting. Yeah. Yes, Peter, please. Maybe very briefly, a couple of points uh, on Will's question. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, we have a sample, it's a sample of one year, and uh, I think what we, <laughs> what there's been a huge literature in the last 10, 20 years mm. on the role of institutions, but it, it's mm. really about long-term mm. growth. And uh, we have, um, myself and some colleagues, uh, that, you know, tried to look at a relatively short time span, but still 15 years or so, the more um, the link between reforms and growth and so on. And it does seem fairly robust, but you will get, you know, outliers and, and so on. So I wouldn't make too much of the uh, the fact that Romania and Bulgaria are doing worse this year than Albania or Macedonia, I think it's, it's, it's maybe for the reasons that Lazar just mentioned. Um, the other point I wanted to make, I want to come back to the question on the fiscal stimulus and whether the IMF would, uh, would step in to stop infrastructure spending. Um, I think the answer to that is no, they wouldn't. Uh, I mean, our experience in the EBRD is we, if, we do, if we're doing a big infrastructure project, mm -hmm. We would always consult the IMF, but they, 
in my experience, they've never said no, that this is not aligned with the macro framework. The macro framework usually, if you go into the details of the program, it, it usually has uh, limits for countries acquiring new debt, external debt, but th they usually make explicit exceptions either for long-term, medium long-term debt, which is what ours would be, or they'll say explicitly for uh, international institutions like the EBRD, European Investment Bank, and World Bank. Uh, so I think the, uh, in general, it's not IMF policy to try and stop spending on these. Of course, what we try to do <coughs> the EBRD is um, not just have spending by uh, infrastructure projects financed entirely by public institutions like ourselves, but we try to involve private sector financing as well through public-private partnerships. Um, these uh, um, these are difficult for all sorts of technical reasons to, to do mm -hmm. them properly, but the, there are some examples that, um, you know, where they have worked uh, quite well, and I think uh, there will be more in the uh, in the future. But uh, but yes, there isn't much scope for fiscal stimulus in these countries. I mean, they simply can't afford it, and they, they would have to pay too much mm -hmm. for this uh, for this debt, and they would lose credibility. It would be an extremely risky risky approach. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see whether we can get another round of mm -hmm. questions. One, two, and three. Yes. <coughs> I have um, two questions. The first one is um, when we are talking that Bulgaria and Romania are currently doing worse than um, the other countries. And even though we said that uh, only one year is like a very short period to really make big conclusions and that the data is not very clear and um, that one explanation is that um, those countries are probably more exposed than other countries. Can you also think that um, another explanation is the sectors in which um, foreign direct investment came? For example, in Bulgaria, a big part of the foreign direct investment was in probably unsustainable and um, a bit speculative sectors like real estate and tourism. So can a sectorial um, explanation be, be given? And also as a second question, even though in the medium and in the long run um, there is a hope for convergence, for the short term, I think you both, you all agreed that um, the situation is not so positive. So should the governments just wait for um, the economic situation to pick up in the rest of the world? Or is there some more proactive thing that they can do in the meantime so that they can help the situation get better? Okay. Yes. Comment. Uh, recently, uh, the Minsky movement uh, is attracting much attention by Hyman Minsky as st stabilizing an unstable, unstable economy. And it is uh, actually the basic is more regarding the location of the assets in the economy by the banks. Do you think that the Western Balkan is lucky? that the, the situation is not worse because of the, if I can say that, a less developed banking system. It shows that our banking systems are not so imposed or involved in that sophisticated products, for example, that are EU banking uh, banks are involved or US banks are involved because according to Minsky movement, actually the problem is in the location and the riskiness of how the assets are allocated with the economy through the banks. And the regulation is what really uh, 
Before I return to our speakers for the last round, let me just add uh, a question or something really, perhaps to make explicit some of the uh, an, an underlying theme in all of this. To what extent do our speakers think that they can identify alternative sources of growth in the medium uh, term? In the event that uh, the recovery in Europe turns out to be rather slow and delayed, what would be their scenario? Start with me again. Well, okay, <laughs> okay we will spare you down, then we will start with Peter. In the different order. Okay. You get the last word. Well, I, I, I think I won't try and answer all of these, but I'll um, try and say, say a few sensible things. Um, on the first question, I, I think was very, the point is very well taken about looking at sectoral composition in, in these countries. Um, of course, by definition, you know, the, the, the aggregate growth rate will be some weighted combination of the different sectors of the economy, but I think one can learn 
more about economies by looking at what they, they specialize in. And certainly there are some key industries in both Bulgaria and Romania that have suffered. And I think you're right to identify that real estate has been very important in Bulgaria. Romania, you have things like the car industry, which um, suffered for a while, but it's shown some, some recovery now. So, uh, but I, I would reiterate again the point about uh, not focusing too much on on one year, and also keep in mind that the very, very strong growth both Bulgaria and Romania had in the five years before it was above six percent every year in Bulgaria in the run up to that, and was something similar on average in, in Romania. And, and I think uh, this was not really something that this was not a kind of some kind of medium long term path, it was something that was few, being fueled by um, particularly by credit growth. And, and when that dried up, it was bound to be a big uh, contraction. Um, but uh, going back to the, also the question about whether governments should try to, should they just sit back and wait and so on, or should they, they try to help the situation get better? I think, um, I mean, most countries we've seen some kind of crisis response package. There's a lot of pressure on governments to be seen to be doing something. But in reality, I think they recognize there's not very much they can do. At the margin, you can help to alleviate you know, some of the worst effects of the crisis and, and help alleviate poverty and so on. But it's really, uh, you know, if you have far-sighted politicians, and I think they're quite rare everywhere in this region and elsewhere, but they, um, you have to think really about, you know, making conditions better for your children and grandchildren and so on, putting really in place, you know, the, the kind of institutions that will deliver long-term growth. It's very difficult to think of what governments can do to try and boost growth in the short term. Um, you know, and, and, and I think they, I think they, they pretty much uh, recognize that. Um, so alternative sources of growth, I, um, in the short term, I don't think, uh, I don't think there's very much they can do. It's, it's, it's all to do really, I think, in the long term with the having the right institutions in place. And here, I think there is still a big, uh, I mentioned earlier the infrastructure deficit, but I think there is an institutional deficit as well, even in those countries like Bulgaria and Romania that are part of the EU. They have a lot of catching up to do to uh, to make things run efficiently in the way they, they do in the most advanced countries. Yes, again, uh, well, I agree. I, I'm sort of skeptical on the FDI composition being able to explain a lot. I um, mean, we've had all this, you know, property invest in Bulgaria and, and others, but, you know, Romania is one of the few that actually has attracted a lot of manufacturing FDI, and still it's the worst performer, partly, because, uh, you know, all sectors are exposed. So, uh, wait for the long run. Well, you know what Keynes said about the long run. Uh, I'm not so totally pessimistic about what governments can do even short term. First of all, to differentiate, you know, some of this talk of institutions and especially where the EU narrative used to come in, you know, EU anchor helps you improve your bureaucracy, rule of law, reduces corruption. Well, it doesn't really, you know, if you look at imperfect measures of these things, even in the members, there's very little difference over 10 years leading up to membership. Uh, it's, it's difficult, you know, these are sort of slow burner tasks. As somebody once well put it, they take generations to change. But there are sort of lower level institutions, the sort of things that you looked in your relationship and that the EBRD 
uh, traces. You know, somebody cynically says, yeah, safety and health regulations, but to be serious, you know, about uh, bankruptcy, about corporate governance, uh, uh, things that sort of, even some things that only take the stroke of a bureaucrat's pen, how easy it is to set up a business. The sort of things that the World Bank traces, and it's excellent ease of doing business report for those of you who are unaware. A lot of these things can be done. They don't require generations change of mentality. And it is quite telling that most of the Balkans, not all of them, so it's possible to do something, do extraordinarily badly. If you look at Bosnia and Croatia, Serbia as well, I think, it's only Macedonia and Bulgaria and Romania where some improvement extraordinarily badly just some of the worst you'll see anywhere outside of Africa. So there's something you can do about that. Albania, Albania as well. Let's <laughs> uh, speak of some of the CIA. So, you know, it's possible. I wouldn't uh, exaggerate the impact of these things on growth, but they do make some difference. We talked about uh, exchange rate policy, which is very important. So I don't think, uh, you know, they're totally powerless and just have to wait uh, Though having said that, these are small countries and just another sort of reality check, uh, just to recount something I heard somebody once say, well, you know, development is uneven and there is no guarantee of convergence. There is a sort of expectation of convergence in Europe. But two things. First of all, if you look at admittedly very uncertain estimates of GDP historically, for what it's worth, these countries vis-a-vis -vis developed Europe are now at more or less at the same level as they were on the eve of the First World War. You know, so that's a sort of sobering thought as well. There's no guarantee of convergence. They've had little spurts here and there, some of them, which as we've seen can come to grief. And another thing is that if development is uneven, if they're going to be labor exporters, who's to say there just won't be sort of perennially underdeveloped regions within a wider Europe? I mean, that is a fate that is possible as well, especially if people are basically, we know, a brain drain. We know of, uh, we've talked a lot about remittances. A large proportion of the working population is not in these countries, and a lot of them. So this is possibly uh, fate as well. And on the regional cooperation, my usual one would have uh, sort of traditionally dismissed it as of any economic importance. Yes, politically important to help keep the peace and all that. I'm not so sure now anymore. Uh, there is scope for increased trade among some of them, there's no doubt. As I say, all sorts of things are possible. We haven't even talked about the politics. I mean, some of these countries are faced with extraordinary political change and turbulence over the next few years, and uh, that might also actually change the regional map and what it means in terms of regional interaction. Finally, I agree completely with the point uh, made uh, at the end that, you know, there is a lot of lazy thinking about the standard narrative, you know, the EU perspective is still there. Well, is it really? But even if it was, so what? You know, the ones who are already members of the EU have had collapses and it is important for certain things, but it's not going to on its own deliver economic prosperity and salvation. And insofar as it is important, a lot of the things, as we said, are happening anyway, like the visa liberalization, the trade, which is the really important stuff. And whether they become uh, members or not in the foreseeable future, we can argue about the importance. First of all, realistically, outside Croatia, they're not going to and the publics realize that, the elites realize that. There's a sort of virtual game going on. We'll pretend that you are still serious about it. 
And if you pretend to reform, we will also, you know, not exactly knowing what these reforms constitute. So it's a bit of a really sideshow compared to the narrow pre-crisis narrative. You know, I don't want to sound too dismissive and cynical and harsh about it, but essentially I think that's the case, and I think that last point was well taken. And finally, there is a, you know, it was asked, you asked, to try and answer your question. What can be done? You know, I, well, I mentioned a few things. There is definitely a dearth of new ideas. There's no doubt about it. You know, you have to look at alternatives. Again, summarized in another joke I sometimes made, the elites here would do better to be reading Asian Development Bank reports than uh, European Commission stuff. So, you know, it is, uh, it is crazy not to try and learn just because they're non-European from countries that have been growing 8 or 9%. A lot of it maybe cannot be transplanted. A lot is irrelevant. But this is almost sort of beyond, uh, you know, the least, well, we're European. I mean, the country, these countries, their main point of their identity is that they're underdeveloped, not that they're European and that they need to grow. So, you know, uh, that's, that would be a very good starting point. Try and learn from the successful ones, because within the EU, there is a diminishing number of successful ones. We've seen what's happened to the Irish miracle. We see where Greece is. The, the catch-up of the Southern Europeans was always very much overhyped. Portugal is in deep crisis and lagging behind. You know, where are the success stories which were meant to have been the point for the Balkans. We've seen what's happened to the Baltics. So it's hard to catch up in thinking with latest, but the last year has been an eye-opener and um, you know everybody thinking about the region, it's sort of back to basics, I think, and everything is up for grabs.